Hi and welcome to this week's 3 Legs 4 Wheels F1 podcast. It's Paul here with... Sean. Dan. Lee. That was an unusual order. It was, it was wasn't it? <laughs> it looked at me, so I, I went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but everyone's in different places. Chris couldn't be with us this week, but um, to make up, we've got Craig Scarborough on. Shall we have a jump cut? Why not? Yes. Go on then. Okay. And as promised, um, Craig Scarborough's with us tonight. Hi, Craig. Uh, hi, guys. How are you all doing? <laughs> no, mate. Not at all bad, thank all you. Good. How are you? Yeah, very, very good. Thank you very much. Fresh off of uh, summer vacation and uh, ready to get my eyes down for the Belgian Grand Prix, which should be fun. Ah, uh, yes, we're, we're only two, less than two weeks away from that now. Yeah, I'm bored now. Yes, One yeah, it's the next thing in our science, isn't it? Yeah, um, this, this summer break's just dra- dragging on so long. Um, one thing that we did notice that didn't happen during the summer break, there was no post-hungry test. What? what that, that was weird, because there has been one for the last few years, mm. hasn't there? Um, yeah, was there not a tyre test, though? Was there just one of the, the private Pirellis? I must say, I can't remember, because I was already sort of switched off in, into a summer shutdown by that stage. Um, uh, I forget, to be honest. Um, but, you know, it's like with um, with testing and with tyre testing, it's um, not half as interesting as it used to be nowadays, because it's so limited. Yeah, that is that is true. But it probably would have given Red Bull an opportunity to maybe try a driver or two out before they made the move. <laughs> Whether a decision was made that far back or not, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, always hard to predict where where Red are going to go with driver decisions, and uh, you know, drivers wanting to join to decide as decide drivers deciding to leave, uh, like Ricardo did last year, that kind of caught them out. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's always tricky, and uh, you know, I think Gasly. I mean, I thought he showed really well last year, and obviously, all of us were a bit disappointed with him. Uh, so far this year um you know i think red bull uh, as the factory team were quite a hard team to to be involved with especially if you're not the the golden boy and i think that's one of the things that probably led uh, ricardo to sort of leave he saw the writing was on the wall that you know he was never going to be the one that got the uh, the front wings first it was a bit of a vettel weather sort of situation again wasn't it so um uh, and, you know, equally, Alban, you know, has showed well, but is it a bit early for him or is he going to be like um, uh, Verstappen was and um, just bloom when you go into the uh, the top team? Ugh, who knows? Well, what, one, of our, one of our listeners managed to get um, a couple of quid on Alban to win in Belgium at 500 to 1 before the, the odds dropped significantly, so... I know he'll be hoping that he is. <laughs> yeah, that's um, yeah, that's a that's a bold bet, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, I mean, why not? The Red Bull goes well um, at Spa, despite everything we sort of think we think we know about uh, the car um, in terms of its power output. Um, so yeah, why wouldn't he? Yeah, album <laughs> for a win. I'll be up for that. Do you think Red Bull have done this because they've almost found themselves in a position they didn't think they'd be? With Ferrari falling off, um, Gasly was hem- yeah. hemorrhaging points for them, and they've got a half chance of coming second in the constructors here. Uh, absolutely, I mean, I think that is, you've hit it exactly on the head. That is the thing that's really driven this, because you know I think expectations were quite moderate for Red Bull this year. I think we, we were, none of us can say that we were um, 
you know, confidently predicting that they would get some, you know, real race wins out there and be so competitive in the races by mid-season. Um, you know, we knew Honda would come through and they would start to improve. And, you know, that's been evident over the past couple of years. But, yeah, you know, how close they have got to Mercedes and the fact that they're, you know, they're just sidestepping Ferrari in the races quite so easily, uh, certainly over the past, you know, three, four races. Um, none of us really predicted that. And I think they can, as you say, they've seen that opportunity, that potential that um, they really could, you know, I suppose, mathematically, Verstappen could win the championship. I think that really is, you know, probably a bit far-fetched but you know who knows what might happen um but you know, a couple of dnfs from hamilton a couple of dnfs from hamilton uh, it'd be right back in uh yeah you know break breaking his leg or something you know really could bring it sort of back in but it, you know it could equally keep the championship alive till at least mathematically till quite late in the season when really a cut you know four races ago it was well, you know, we'll probably get the summer break over and the championship will be finished and then we can then decide, you know, maybe they'll bring yeah. Ocon in and give Lewis a couple of races off. Um, <laughs> yes, but uh, that that's a completely different uh, subject. But yeah, you know, Red Bull really have come on leaps and bounds this year. Um, and, uh, you know, I say Red Bull, I think in fairness, I think it's actually Honda's development that really has matured massively this year and has obviously got a lot of people's attention, particularly at Mercedes and um, Hamilton made some comments that you know their power um, uh, maps at certain points of the circuit are delivering more power than Mercedes are delivering at that. But obviously, it's a different strategy how you deliver your energy and your power throughout the lap. But the fact that you know the talk is now about well, you know, Honda have actually got more power than us at certain areas of the track is not the language that we were using during testing. Um, and, it, you know, it was very much, we all thought it was going to be, um, uh, you know, Ferrari, uh, Mercedes uh, race to the championship. And it's just not worked out that way. And, um, again, some comments from Red Bull just before the summer break was that, you know, the engine now is that good that we're going to have to reevaluate how we're using this car. And we can actually now start to add downforce because we've got the power to, um, you know, offset the drag that this additional downforce will produce. Um, and, uh, you know, that is a very different story for um, Red Bull, uh, even just, you know, only at the halfway stage of the of the year. I mean, it, it really does seem to have um, seem to come together for both Red Bull and for Honda this time around. Mm. Is, there's got to be a much better working relationship with um, both Red Bull teams than Honda ever had with McLaren. And is it just out of the, the different way of um, doing things between the teams? Because I mean, um, we, we, I we saw Grand Prix driver and um, how bad things were back in back in the McLaren yes. days. Yeah, and I you know I think we, we we've spoken a lot about the Honda McLaren relationship over the years that you know we've been talking on the show here, and it really wasn't you know fit for purpose for, from either side. And the thing that you know history has always taught us with the Formula One team dealing with Honda is that you've got to manage them. You know, even though you're supposed to be partners, if you're the team, you're the people that need to make sure what Honda are delivering is what they said it was. Um, both, you know, in terms of you, know, you go back to the um, the documentary series. You know, a stud that mounts the engine to the gearbox was the wrong size. It was on one drawing as one size, and different on another one. And you didn't you got run away and you know machine a new fastener. Yeah, that sort of stuff shouldn't be happening. 
you know, Honda delivering new parts that are unreliable should be Honda's responsibility. But you as a you as a constructor need to look after that. And we saw, you know, speaking to James Key um, quite early last year about this relationship. And he was saying how, you know, they had people out in Japan. They had so many people, uh, not necessarily purely from the Toro Rosso point of view, but from the Red Bull Technologies, which is this kind of overarching engineering business that looks after both teams to an extent. And they were they were managing Honda the way that they had to at some stage manage Renault. You know, they realized there was that point when things got really strained that Renault were bringing new parts to the uh, to the track and they were breaking down. So Red Bull actually set up their secretive, I forget what they called it now, Building 7 in their Milton Keynes base, which houses the the um, the full car dyno where you can apply both the aero effects to a chassis, but also have it running on a dyno. So it's as close to running on a test track as is possible in a, in a, you know, a virtual testing environment. And with that, they then started to prove all of the Renault parts. And they're obviously they're going through that same process now with Honda so that when they get to the circuit with new parts from Honda, that, that Red Bull know that they fit, that they operate as Honda were suggesting, that they are reliable. And, you know, that allows Honda then not to be chasing their tail and to be focusing on, you know, adding more performance to that engine. And it's coming across, you know, their reliability has been, I, I have to be careful because I haven't double-checked the stats, but... They probably are, you know, more reliable than Renault, um, which, you know, again, Renault continued to be, you know, the worst barometer for uh, Formula One engine performance, um, you know, throughout this current formula that they've got with these engines. So, you know, Honda may not have more qualifying power or more engine performance throughout a lap than Renault potentially, but they're making progress faster than Renault are, in my opinion. And, you know, they will be, I think, by the time we get all these specs, and that will mean some uh, penalties, grid penalties for the uh, the Red Bull teams uh, before the end of the year. But I think but by the time we get uh, a fully proven engine out in 2020, I think Honda are going to be right in the tails of Ferrari and uh, Mercedes. And that means with the Red Bull in chassis improved and, you know, <clears throat> ready to accept this more powerful engine, you know, with more downforce and you can carry more drag, you know, um, not least this year, but certainly next year, I think we could be in for a very strong fight with Rebel in the championship um, from the start of the year, which is very dangerous for Mercedes. Wow. <laughs> I hope so. We, you know, it, it, it's something we need now, isn't it? Is someone to, to challenge Mercedes because it doesn't seem to matter with Ferrari whether they've got the car or not. They just don't seem to be capable enough as a team. Yeah, I mean, I think Ferrari got enough holes in their operation to uh, you know keep them away from championship challenging. Um, it's you know, we've we've sort of seen the story from you know so what was some great promise um, a couple of years ago that kind of died away a little bit last year, but then through testing this year we thought, wow, you know they've come back, they've fix what they needed to uh, only to find out that you know the engine isn't as great as it appeared the chassis is not as great as it appeared their race strategy isn't as good as it should be the drivers um again in particular with i think vettel has obviously been um 
criticised more for his driving errors. But, you know, we've seen errors from both drivers. You know, I think you can cr- criticise Vettel because he's experienced and we wouldn't criticise Leclerc because he's less experienced. But still, there have been errors there. And, you know, they've not brought that performance that I still think is in that car somewhere, but they've not brought it to a situation where they can win a race, mm-hmm. whereas Red Bull have. And that shows you the difference between, you know, the whole operation. It's not just the car. It's not just the engine or the drivers or the team principal. It's that whole package. And Ferrari, oddly, they seem to be getting better in that respect last year. And you, you thought that Binotto had a full handle on it. Maybe him taking the full mantle of the team on board without having that big pair of hands to step back into the technical director role um, as, you know, maybe spread everyone a bit too thin. But, you know, Ferrari certainly seem to have lacked direction from very early through the season. You haven't seen them react in the way that we know their resources could allow them to. You know, we know that Ferrari can turn around. You know, if they wanted, they could probably produce a completely new car in three months if they wanted. We've not seen that, you know, and even only a few races ago, we were still hearing from Ferrari. Yeah, I think we haven't got enough downforce. And it's like, well, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> this, is, this is race 11 now. Uh, you know, if, if us mere mortals looking at the, you know, the minimal data that we get um, can work it out, then surely Ferrari can. And it's strange that there isn't that change of direction um you know they are a big team and you know they're not an agile team but they do have massive resources and they should be throwing everything at that and again you don't get that feeling that someone's really banging their fist on the desk and pushing that team forwards do you think they struggle when they haven't got a a driver to sort of galvanize around because they haven't really had that ferrari driver since alonso left ferrari yeah i don't think vettel has ever been Like the Ferrari driver I, I they wanted that, him to be. I think in that, uh, I think maybe in that first year, I think Vettel did have that effect uh, to an extent. I think whether that was the team looking towards him, and particularly with um, you know, Raikkonen really not performing. Mm. But um, I think that you know, I, I mean, I think a lot of people are now have got a quite a different view of Vettel over the past couple of seasons. And you're right, he isn't, and you know, Leclerc is still maybe a bit too early in his journey to be the person that they will. Um, I think if he got a couple of victories in, I think the situation would change, you know, very rapidly to um, being a very uh, Charles-focused team than it is a Sebastian-focused team. Um, But equally, um, you know, I've got huge respect for Bonotto as a technical director, and I think he, in lots of respects, he's done some good things uh, in how he runs the team as Ferrari. But... Equally, again, I was again. It's there isn't that sort of dictatorial style from him that I think you know maybe Ferrari needs, you know, um, to 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 push push everyone in the right direction. You know, Ferrari can be a very hard organisation to, um, you know, sort of shepherd into a direction. We've seen that, you know, consistently over well all of the decades Ferrari been racing, certainly since. Um, you know, uh, the old man himself sort of passed away that, you know, there isn't that big pair of hands, you know, shouting, guiding and telling people to shut up and do as they're told. Um, maybe uh, Binotto isn't that person um, and there does need to be, a, you know, maybe a different team principal and allow Binotto to go back to being shouted at and then directing the people in a very calm way. It's, you know, I think there is, there is something missing. Um, so it is, 
partly driver, but I think also it is, you know, at the, you know, the very top direction of the team that's uh, lacking. Um, and even above him, um, you know, obviously once, uh, sadly, you know, Mark, only died. I'm not sure if a new guy whose name I can't even recall, which I think probably tells us a lot, um, you know, isn't, isn't directing the F1 team in the way um, that we've had uh, over, uh, over the years. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's it. It always seems with Ferrari that we constantly think that some sort of reshuffle of personnel is what they need. Yeah, it's it's we're forever talking about like either somebody <laughs> getting sacked or someone coming in, and it's you, like even now if you did get a different technical director in, it's just more instability, isn't it, for another year and then another year of building, and it's before yeah, you know I mean, it, it's probably twenty thirty. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's a constant cycle, isn't it? I mean, I think if someone would do very well to draw some kind of a, a, a chart of the, the management over the past 10, 20 years <laughs> and seeing this, you know, the zigzag paths of people coming and going, um, and it's not good for Ferrari. But, you know, with all of these things, it, it's, it's what comes down from the very top. And um, I think, you know, that, that's really where the buck stops or starts i don't know which way which, which direction it goes but um yeah i think there is some direction that's needed there because you know there someone reminded me of the um the, the nicky lauda quote in the um james hunt nicky lauda movie when it's like you know how can a team like this not win every race <laughs> you've got all these perform you know you've got all of these facilities and resources in the car you make as a shit box you know it's <laughs> it's still like that and that was in 1974 i think it was yeah. wasn't it 75 when nicky first went there um you know and it's still the same situation now and maybe that is just what ferrari is and maybe we should love it for how it is but um i think everyone as much as um, you know, we didn't. People maybe didn't like the domination of the Schumacher era. I think people do need to see Ferrari winning in Formula One. It's like you know, you know. I'm sure we'll talk about some of the other classic teams, like you know Williams. You know, some of these historic teams need to be winning because that is what Formula One is kind of all about. Um, you know, sadly we've had lots of eras of big one-team dominance, which did include Ferrari, as I say. But um, yeah, and you know, I think. We need to see a, a slightly better performance from them, um, but still accept that they're always going to be this kind of um, unshepherded organisation that, you know, lets itself down. And, you know, that's great because it lets other teams, you know, the chance to, to win championships. If they got their act together, you know, we wouldn't see where, which direction they went, I'm sure. No, I, th- I think it, it would it would be a much duller world without a Ferrari crisis every six to, six to eight months, <laughs> six to eight weeks. Well, again, well yeah. If, <laughs> if if we had so you know the teams that are as well organised as Mercedes, um, uh, if it was you know eleven of those teams, twelve of those teams in Formula One, it would make for an incredibly boring championship. <laughs> which is not to denigrate anyone you know working or driving uh, at Mercedes, but you know, you can see that they are doing just such a good job of this year after year. Um, and if we ignore those first couple of years where after they took the Braun team over, where they were all over the shop. But once they hit 2014, you know, changing regulations, they're prepared for it. And, you know, they've kind of ridden that wave now for, for so many years. And you you can't see it changing, even with the, you know, the 2021 rules. It's like, will that shake it up? Why should it? 
you know, if you've got an operation that really are efficient and are working properly, why would that, you know, necessarily have to change um, until you start to, you know, people start to step out of that business because of age or, you know, other avenues they want to explore. But at the moment, Mercedes are getting it done right. Red Bull are an interesting business. You know, they got it right for quite a few years and then they've had that little change. And now you can see they're fighting back and they're doing a good job of what they're doing. Ferrari, you know, they're that kind of slightly disheveled, disorganized, uh, ramshackle operation um, that sometimes get it right. And other times, you know, uh, just show that, you know, all the resources in the world and huge amounts of money uh, doesn't bring you championships. Do you think they go into next year with the same driver lineup? Um, I'd be tempted to say no. But, um, I mean, I think we all know the drive we're pointing at, don't we? Which is, which is, you know, will Vettel want to retire? You know, does he think he can carry on and succeed? You know, I, 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 I don't know in his mind. Is there someone at the Ferrari that would make that decision for him? And if so, who would, who would go into that other seat? Well, would they pull right back to the top team? I mean, I, I can't think of any obvious candidates that ferrari have got that could um sort of be brought in well when raikkonen went to alfa romeo um mm-hmm. i said straight away the reason they gave him a two uh, two-year contract was in case they needed him back in ferrari the, on the second year yeah. of that contract I, I i thought that but what i was going to say was do you happen to know whether Bonotto, when he was just when he was like the the team guy not the team principal was he an Alonso guy? No, he, I mean, Bonotto was going back to the uh, Todd Byrne Braun era. He was one of the Italians that they were building up to be the uh, the replacement for themselves. You know, it was the uh, someone that was going to inherit those positions. So he was um, already very senior. I, th- I can't remember what, what department he was running at the time of Alonso being in the team. But he wouldn't have had day-to-day... But he wouldn't have had like day-to-day racetrack contact with Alonso then, because that's what I was thinking is, if he happened to be one of the guys that was particularly in Alonso's corner, and he only, he only wants to come back to Formula 1 in a winning car, and they need a top-line driver, it might not be a bad move for Ferrari to go back knocking on his door well i mean as i as i'm starting to remember now bonotto was the was the engine man and he would have been there through at, at track side through uh, you know alonso's tenure at the team whether they would want him back now i i can't see that to be honest um i think if say for example vettel has just broken his leg uh, while you know cycling uh, during the summer break I think that would be a situation where he may be drafted in. But I think if they stopped and looked in the cold light of day, who do they want in that car for 2020? I don't see Alonso being something, someone that's going to stay on that shortlist for very long and would soon be probably discounted. And I, I, I think that would be the right decision for Ferrari as well. Yeah. Lee, let it go. He's gone to a farm in the country where <laughs> no. he can chase rabbits. It's interesting. <laughs> I, I, I still, I, I know the trouble for Alonso causes, but I still hate the fact that you miss the trouble. One, yeah, I, I, I miss the trouble, and I, I miss the fact that sort of one of the best drivers in the world isn't in Formula One. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know they've 
I think he still has in him the potential to come in win a championship. I think he has that skill, um, but I don't think there is an environment that is ready for him. Um, and I don't think if it was, I don't think him coming into it knowing how he operates would necessarily then <laughs> oddly actually deliver. It's it's strange. He's almost you know he's kind of his own worst enemy, isn't he? Yeah. Um, but I think the talent that he's got, I think he's actually doing the right thing, and he's picking out events and things that he would really enjoy doing, like you know potentially the Dakar, um, you know, Indy, uh, Le Mans. There's all these other things that he could do that he can apply himself for. When he'll he will enjoy himself, he will, probably will succeed to you know, a, a, a greater extent rather than a lesser one. Um, and I think that would, his time's better served doing that than it would be trying to get a team to uh, win a championship around him. I think I think one of the Coronels tweeted earlier tonight that uh, he's said that Alonso's definitely doing Dakar, whereas there's been no confirmation yeah, I mean, from I anywhere think, else. I think that... I- I'm not sure if that's been announced or not, but I mean that seems to, that seems to be where all of the uh, the hints are going, isn't it? Um, and you know it's quite possible to do the Dakar without upsetting you know your, your, a typical racing season because it you know it's so early in the year when everyone you know, before the testing's even started. So yeah, he could do that, and he, I suppose potentially he could be on the grid in Melbourne or in testing in Barcelona if they're going to test next season. So um, you know that. He could still dovetail the two together, but I just don't see realistically him coming back to Formula One in a planned, you know, long-term contract role. Um, I think that that time's gone now. There, there you go, Lee. You, you can officially be upset now. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I can, I can hold on. Yeah. Um, mentioned earlier, sort of talking about the classic teams. Um, Williams finally appear to be on a bit of an upswing from the last few weeks. They've got points on the board this season. Um, the car is actually performing and they've even been beating a couple of drivers on pace. Um, is this a false dawn or do we, do, between the five of us tonight, do we actually think this this could be the start of a bit of a recovery? I'm not saying they'll be back at the front with, by the end of the season, but... Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think we... You know, They've tacked onto the back of the midfield now, I think, is what we can take from those last few races. Um, and they've done that consistently with updates to the car at each of the past three, four races. And their performance has improved each time. Now, we obviously, there have been slightly topsy-turvy weekends with the weather. So we have to kind of have a bit of a caveat that, you know, it is, you know, and if we had a normal weekend at the next, the next three races are Spa, Monza, Singapore, or Russia. I, yeah. I think it's Singapore, 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 Singapore Japan, Russia. It is Singapore. Oh, is it that way around? I think yes. So. Um, Dan, Dan, Dan's oh, reading oh, yeah. his mug. Oh, sorry, Singapore, yeah. Russia, Japan. Yeah, yeah per- that sounds right. Belgium, yeah. Italy, Singapore, <laughs> Russia, Japan. Um, if they do well in Spa, I think that's a good sign. Um, they go well. At, Monza regardless because basically it's, the car's just been shoved along by the engine and we've seen that consistently for the past few years um, Singapore's quite a strong test for them so if they do have a strong end to the season and as you say they start to beat the teams that are trailing at the uh, the back of the midfield depending on the weekend so that you know it's been Haas it's been Force India um, so I think the main thing is that they have got some consistency in their pace that brings them up to those cars in qualifying and 
means that they're tagging along with them during the race. So that's great news, isn't it? You know, Williams have kind of got this dreadful, huge gap to the everybody else kind of closed up. And that's quite nice to know because they've done it with quite obvious physical changes to the car. So they've changed the front suspension. They've done work to the uh, side pods and to the barge boards. They haven't had a new front wing, as I recall. Certainly not a big dramatic change to that. And they've had some setup changes, which obviously George Russell was talking about. So maybe they are starting to get a grip um, on the car. But again, with these tyres... It's very hard to know whether you've got something right for every situation or you just got it right with the way the weather and the tyres and your car was on that day, uh, you know, which is the problem that a lot of the midfield have had. You know, Haas in particular, you know, can be heroes one day and awful, uh, you know, the next race or even in the next session. Because heroes her- so, her- Saturday, villain Sunday. Uh, exactly or you know from race to race it depends if the sun's out it depends if the rain's come out depends on the layout of the track and sometimes just other factors that no one can understand so yeah so hopefully Williams have turned a bit of a corner Um, they're already working as as most of the teams are on next year's car and there's not a lot of regulation changes going into next year so that's quite a safe thing to really be working forwards on especially if they've actually have honestly understood what's been wrong with this year's car because it's not really been said very specifically what the particular areas are and they've changed pretty much everything so it's very hard to be able to say oh yeah well they changed the side pods the side pods were the problem i don't think that was the case um and they've made a couple of changes to the suspension over the year as well particularly at the front so you know we don't know if that was a factor I mean, with, with, with the situation at Williams, we've actually had more technical details on the car coming from George Russell's statements than anyone from the team. They're lining him up to be the next yeah, Paddy uh, Lowe. <laughs> uh, well, yes, may, maybe he is. And again, it does show that there is you know, a bit of slight uh, odd shape to the technical structure at Williams in that there isn't this you know, technical director um, running the team in the kind of the public way that we all see. Clearly, there are people at the factory that are doing this. Um, and, you know, it's not always necessary to have a figurehead. And obviously, Pat Fry has been released from McLaren around the same time as Williams confirmed that Paddy Lowe had been released um, from uh, his um, spending time with his family, I think he was said he was doing, wasn't he? I, th- I think that was, that, um, was, that was the official reason given. <laughs> So then Williams have obviously, you know, thought, well, he obviously doesn't need to be paid in order to spend time with his family. So they've released him now, um, which is lovely of them. Um, so we obviously we need to kind of keep a, a bit of a, a watching brief on where Williams go with that. Um, so, again, we've got to be very cautious with, you know, signs of recovery. You know, is that something that's very permanent? Is that something that they've understood and have corrected? Or is it just, you know, everyone trying as hard as they can has ended up finding a, a, a solution um so you know i want them to, to improve as we said we all want them to improve um and you know we'll just you know keep an eye on you know the balance of the season just to see if you know there's some consistency to the performance that they've had you know particularly with russell which you know sadly for um particularly the polish fans and um you know all of us that you know have watched kibitza um you know is there something different between these two cars? I, I can see no evidence of that. Um, and the, the difference in performance in these two um, cars is, is quite evident now. Um, so, again, you know, is that another seat that will be 
uh, changed uh, before the season's out. Um, you know, I think there is there is um, a, a case to argue there, isn't there? I was surprised it didn't happen sort of now in the summer break sort of time. I thought he might have been switched out mm. for Spa. Uh-huh. Yes, and well, you know that's still a few weeks away. So, um, you know, I think there is the potential. I, uh, equally, when you've got a very difficult car, it's very hard to come down tough on a single driver. Um, and Williams have had their issues, you know, with with the two cars over the first half of this year. So maybe he he, he can last out the season. I would be surprised if it goes beyond that. Um, sadly, um, the Canadian but... flag will be coming out of storage soon. <laughs> Um, I don't think the Canadian flag. I think the Canadian flags are, um, you know, sort of ensconced in the in the pink team, aren't they? But, uh, well, uh, the, well, they've got uh, they've got Latifi in reserve, haven't they? So. Oh yes, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm mis- I thought you were talking about the Strongs going back. I no, I can't, I, can't, I can't imagine that. I can't. That I, can't I mean, I think Daddy's got quite that much money to go to two teams. But yeah, yeah, there are you know there there are people with um with with wallets uh, ready to be emptied. Um, and Williams, I think, have to you know decide which direction they go with it because, as you say, there is the T fee. There's still the, you know, several Russian drivers floating around with with, with money as well. So um, we'll, we'll see which way that goes. Um, and um, you know, I think when it's been, I think I've got to be careful because whenever you talk about a British driver as a British person, you, you seem to be uh, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> waving waving the flag but I, you know, I i think there is a consensus that russell is doing a very good job there uh he'll have a year of experience and i think maybe they could afford to have you know a rich fast very young driver uh come in to, to back him up um and i think that would be good for williams i think this is something that they could handle um knowing that they've got you know a, a relatively good pair of hands with russell looking after the uh car do you think there's any chance of Bottas going back to Williams if he doesn't get kept on at um, Mercedes? Yeah, I think that is. I mean, you know, that is an opportunity, and I, I, I think um, Wolf has made a couple of <laughs> rather blatant comments. It's like, oh, if he leaves, he'll have a soft landing somewhere else, and it's like, what do you mean if he leaves? <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to leave. Said, you you said that Ocon's going to get a soft landing if he doesn't get the drive, have you? Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, again, I mean, I think that and a bunch of cash or some free engines would be another option. Whether Bottas would choose to do that or not, would um, Bottas go over to the former E team potentially or something? I don't know. But uh, we'll we'll, um, we'll find out in about uh, about three and a half weeks. Is it? Till yes. Yeah. The, uh, the the Mercedes launch is is not far away from the former E team, is it? Um, yeah. As well as. Um, the, uh, the Spa Grand Prix, which will be a hotbed of rumours as well, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, whether Bottas, having driven for the works team, would want to go back to Williams, knowing where they are, I think would be, um, you know, I think that would be a, a test of your character, wouldn't it, to uh, to make that call? Um, I don't know if, if I would think too long about that myself. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, I mean, I think Williams' problems... Uh, you know, are less to do with their drivers and much more to do with the uh, with the design team and the, t- the technical direction of the team and the management of the team. Um, so, you know, hopefully that side of things will get sorted out and we just end up with someone exciting in the second Williams if, you know, if it isn't Kubica for uh, 2020. It's what we wanted for a long time, just just to watch just to watch something good in a Williams. And if we, yeah. get, two, if we get two exciting drivers in there, 
Um, mm. Even if the car's a little bit substandard, you'll still end up with two drivers getting more out of it than theoretically they should be able to. Exactly. And, um, you know, we know that I don't see the midfield changing into a kind of a upper midfield and lower midfield anytime soon, particularly depending on what they're doing with the tyres. Um, so, you know, if Williams can tack onto the back of that performance and still improve one weekend, maybe they will be, you know, the, the team that are lining up in Q3, you know, potentially, you know, behind the, the top six um, leading cars. You know, that can happen with the variation you're getting with these tyres and with the car setup at the moment. So, you know, Williams could be moving into a zone. And we could see, you know, some amazing performances from their car uh, over the next year and a half. Keeping everything crossed with that. Mm. Um, just moving away from the teams yeah, briefly. That's an extreme situation, but it could, <laughs> it could Just moving away from the teams briefly. You said the um, 2020 regulations, there's no sort of major changes. So do you think we're going to see more of a evolution of this year's cars than anything new and radical coming in? Everyone's keeping the power to drive for what may be the 2021 grand sweeping change. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone, uh, I mean, people, I think, will continue developing this year's car in as much that I don't think next year's cars are going to look that different. Now, obviously, they are already now signing off the monocoques and the gearbox design and all that sort of stuff, because that's got that's where the lead times need to be to get those things ready for uh, winter testing. But, um, yeah, there isn't a huge amount of changes. I mean, a lot of the changes are sort of quite nice little detail ones. Um, there's nothing there really which would make you want to change your philosophy of your car other than, you know, we've seen um, the, you know, the high downforce, high drag cars like the Mercedes. Uh, and then you see the, you know, the, the lower drag, the lower downforce cars like the Ferrari, uh, the Red Bull to an extent as well. I think we're going to see a lot of the cars moving back towards a much higher downforce configuration next year. Um, uh depending on exactly what happens with the tyres, because I'm not entirely clear what Pirelli are going to be mandated to produce for next year. But I don't think, but they, I, are. Don't think they are <laughs> yet either. Um, yeah. Pirelli are in a very difficult position. The FI are in a very difficult position. I'm not quite sure what everyone's trying to do with tyres going forwards um, uh, before the big change in the regulations, at least. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I think... All the reg changes for 2020 can be potentially could be incorporated, maybe even without a change of chassis. You probably could run a B-spec car of your car next year and save yourself a whole heap of uh, money and effort and focus everything on 2021 whenever those regulations uh, finally get published and agreed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we will see still a lot of development going into the back end of the season, even if it's just people bringing out some ideas and then, you know, parking them because they were literally just to do a bit of an aero test during a Friday session um, just to get some data for the car design over the winter. Who does that benefit then? Does that benefit teams that have got it right this year because they're just evolving this year's car? Or is that a chance for those that have maybe got it wrong to catch up? Um, it's you, you, you could look at it both ways. So if you look at Mercedes, I mean, you know, they could literally just turn off the all the CAD system for the W10 and just only work on the system for the W11 coming up for next year because they've got that level of advantage in the championship, you know, Red Bull's performance notwithstanding. Um, so in theory, that would give them an advantage. 
But I think what history has proven is the more the regulations stay consistent, is the more the field tends to close up. Um, so theoretically, the midfield should get a bit closer to the top three. But I think what more likely would happen is that the top three would get a bit closer and the midfield would get a bit closer with it still a significant gap between the two. Um, but overall, it should end up being, and theoretically being a bit more competitive all round. Um, but, you know, there's always someone that's got a better idea um, and something hidden up their sleeve. So you're never quite sure. But um, I, I think next year should be, just as I say, just generally a bit more tighter between all of the teams. Isn't the general rule of thumb when we have static rules for a bit? The last year of the static rules tends to be really, really good, and then we mess it up by changing <laughs> everything. Yes, that's exactly what happens every time. Um, and you know, twenty twenty one will be no no exception because if if the regulations do come in for twenty twenty one and it's still all very much up in the air. Um, I think there's every chance where you know it would be a, a, everyone would scatter to the four corners of the uh, the grid um, again. And yeah, you know, one part of me says, well, let's not change the rules then. Let's just keep everything consistent. But I think there's the potential if those 2021 regs come out as they should be. I think that it would be worth taking a year or two of you know uh, scatter in the team's performance. Um, in order to get these, you know, the potential overtaking benefits and the cost-saving benefits, which should help, you know, sort of return Formula One to where it needs to be. So um, I think 2021 and these, you know, Ross Brown's rule changes are still very much required for the sport to be healthy um, going into the 2020s. Even just the freshen up, like aesthetically, I think is needed. I, I, I've said quite a lot. If if you take the you know the 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 Formula One fan that Formula One's lost the guy that just tunes in on a Sunday and watches a race now and again. Mm. That that guy that seems to have disappeared now. It if you showed him a arrows from '97 and this year's Mercedes, they're obviously going to look different. But if you don't know what you talk about in the sport, you could quite easily believe that those cars race on the same circuit. No, absolutely. You know, I mean, how often, you know, we're obviously all you know, attuned to it, but how often do you actually see a Formula One car anywhere uh, apart from when you watch the, the racing and read the magazines and the websites? You don't, you know, I've got children. You go to a big toy store, there's no Formula One toys. There's no, no. F1 car, you know, Fisher-Price level things. There's no, you know, there's some very expensive Lego, and I think the Skeletric still does exist, but it's not exactly sort of out there they can, um, they can overtake you know, now <laughs> yeah <laughs> where do you, you know you don't see it on billboards you know you don't hear people talking about um Vettel and stuff you know if you see Hamilton in the press in the mainstream press it's not with a crash helmet on it's him doing his fashion stuff um so you know Formula One really doesn't get its face out there in the way that it did when I was younger, where, you know, you could kind of, you know, we had loads of F1 toys around the house. Nobody in my house was particularly a Formula One fan. I don't come from a family of motorsport um, uh, aficionados. They were much more into sort of their footballs and other things. But, you know, there's still F1 cars everywhere. Um, and you don't get that now. So I think you know, Formula One does need to do a lot more to get its face out there. And I think a fresher looking car um, and a much simpler looking car uh, would, would be a good thing. 
Oh, they, they tried the simpler looking car back in uh, 2009. I was watching the... the greatest was... year in Formula One history. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was watching um, a repeat of the 2008 US Grand Prix that Sky had on last night. And my God, there was a lot going on on those cars. Way too much. Was that the X-Wing year? No, the 2008, that was the uh, nose cone in between the two front wing planes and the Dumbo ears and you name it. Bridge wings, and then McLaren had the big Viking wings coming out the roll hoop and all of that sort of stuff. Um, Sauber, BMW at the time, had some odd stuff on the nose as well. Um, And I think where we've got to with barge boards has kind of reached that same level of um, sheer lunacy. and I know, obviously, there was a reason they did it back in um, 2017 to try and put some pace back in the cars, but it really was the wrong way of doing things. I, th- I think the cars should be really shorn of anything um, what you could kind of regard as overlapping bodywork. So, like, you know, bits on the front wings obviously have now gone, but all of the barge boards, all of the bits along the side pods, I think that all needs to be got rid of and just have, you know, the surface of the car is the bit that you see. Can you um, can you explain the boomerangs? Because they they are they seem to be the hot topic at the minute <laughs> on every every other team's putting them on. Like, what what are they and what do they do? <laughs> okay, so um, the boomerangs. It's very hard to explain when you haven't got um, a picture to show people on the podcast. But these are like the wing like bits that are coming out across the barge boards, out towards the sort of the outer corner of the side pod. And what these are, these are basically just trying. If you think, if you looked at a car in side profile if you could imagine the air hits the front wing and wants to go upwards because that's the curve of the front wing so the air reaching the um barge board area is going upwards but what you actually want it to do is going downwards through that kind of undercut in the side pods and around the side pods to the diffuser area where it goes over the top of the diffuser with with high pressure so what the boomerang does, it's basically, it's like an aircraft wing. It's an inverted race car wing. It's trying to turn that upwards flow from the front wing into downwards flow around the side pods and the diffuser. Um, and it's it was, you had more space for it last year. So everyone had them immediately last year. And when they've kind of had a bit of a, a, a height restriction for the bodywork in that area this year, and everyone took them off and have now realized they're going to put them back on. Um, so the, the joke about the boomerangs coming back uh, is kind of well well worn in the situation, um, and it, the, the, it's one of these odd aero things that F1 tends to bring up more than anything. They are actually creating lift; they're actually trying to lift the car off the circuit um, with the downforce that they're creating. It's actually upward force, not downforce. It's lift like an aircraft, but because it makes the d- diffuser work so much better, it adds more downforce overall. So it kind of offsets that effect. And it's, there's lots of stuff that teams are now adding to the all over the cars. Um, and I think the, the Mercedes update from a couple of races ago is a classic example of that. It's, um, you know, bodywork that's creating lift in order to create downforce. And it's just it's just madness. You know, as much as I love talking and writing about all this stuff, it's really not what should be on a racing car. Um, and, you know, we, should, we do need to get back to much simpler shaped cars with much less complicated bodywork. Um, and I'm hopefully that's where these, you know, potential 2021 rules are going to come in, come back to, um, you know, they've got a few little bits of clever body work, but we've just got to be careful that the wording of the rules doesn't invite, you know, teams to suddenly start really exploiting these areas like they have done over the past few years. Well, hasn't, uh, hasn't Ross Brown set up his own, um, loopholes working group to find out if there's any loopholes that 
somebody like, I don't know, say, for example, himself would have been able <laughs> to work out. Well, and to be honest, this is one of the things that has kind of been lacking from the regulation writing process for, for many years. I mean, the, the T-wing and the shark fin a couple of years ago, even the double diffuser, it's like, it's so obvious that that is the loophole. You know, why didn't someone work this out at the time? Um, so, yes, I understand that he has got a group. Um, if he needs he needs any help, if he's listening, um, <laughs> I'm happy to have a read through. Uh, I've been fairly good over the years in predicting some of the uh, ridiculous thing, side effects of the regulations. But, um, yeah, again, you know, I mean, I think this whole process that Braun has put in place to, you know, look at what is the problem, what are the potential uh, you know, what are the mechanisms that are creating this problem? What are the solutions for it? And then testing these solutions rather than just saying, I think what we need to do is X, which is what's happened in the past. It's a kind of a snap your fingers, I've decided, and actually doing it a bit more scientifically. And I think that that's the only way this whole process is going to work if we're going to make the cars you know, cheaper to make, easier to overtake with, or at least you know, make them a lot more racy with each other. Uh, while keeping within a you know, reasonable performance level, so um, yeah, hopefully that will all that will all shake out quite nicely in 2021, and no one interferes with it too much um, you know, over the next few months. Or maybe if somebody does interfere with it, Ross Brown headhunts head hunt, head them and gets them working for him rather than the teams. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, but sadly, I think the people that are going to screw it up will be the team principals. Um, sadly. Or, or the team principals telling the technical directors that they're not allowed to vote for this, that, or the other, because obviously it's a competitive disadvantage for them if they did change that. But that's 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 again how the rules have been decided by this kind of odd. Let's all agree, and if we can't all agree, we'll just keep watering them down until we finally get something we can agree on, which is virtually no change at all. Um, so I think there does need to be a bit more of a dictatorial style in the FIA as well as. Ferrari, I seem to be constantly suggesting we should have dictators. Um, <laughs> which isn't, but yeah, I think someone really doesn't kind of lay the law down and say, look, well, they're the rules, you know, take them or leave them. Um, and that's how it should be with sport. You know, you don't, you don't see, um, you know, all the premiership teams going to the FA and going, could we just kind of relax the offside rule because you know we're losing a lot of goals because we you know we're getting caught offside so much so yeah, it, yeah that's not how sport should be regulated is it you know it needs to be, come from the governing body and you, if you enter that sport you agree to abide by the rules you don't enter it in order to change the rules to suit your needs it can like ross go in with a folder just slap it on the table and say there's the rules, get on with it, especially with Ferrari still having power of veto. Um, I'm, I'm not insure, entirely sure. I think it all has to be ratified by various uh, working groups, which does include the teams. So I think the way the sport works now is I don't think they could do that um, because it's all in with the Concord Agreement and stuff that, frankly, I don't understand. But, uh, yeah, so I don't think that is actually possible, but I think that's really is what needs to happen. Mm. What's the cut-off point for 2021? At what point do the teams need to know what they're dealing with before it becomes too late? Oh, there, there is a regulation, and I'm trying to remember what the date is now. Um, I think it's something like October the year before. Um, but... 
but I think that is only for sort of not for major regulation changes. There is something I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but from a t- if if you think of it from um, a team perspective, they need to have they already have designed the monocoque and the gearbox of their new cars, which means they've got the basic layout of the 2020 car already. So they would need to know pretty much by the time testing starts um, in the new year. Hopefully it would be more like October this year um, that they get the regulations so that they can start working on it. But again, the teams can't even agree on that. Is Do they get them out early or do they get them out late? Because either way it could advantage you know, big teams with lots of resources or it could advantage small agile teams or imaginative teams. It's like no one can really decide when to let the cat out the bag. Um, so it's tricky. They've got an idea of what they're working towards because they've obviously been working with the FA on regulations already. So I wouldn't be surprised if lots of the teams have already done lots of aero research to what the regulations potentially could be. But it's when they really need to start, you know, uh, signing off designs for manufacturing that really then starts to impact them because the aero work will continue uh, all the way up, you know, to now to the first race and obviously throughout the season anyway. And I suppose when you've got, when you've got a team like uh, Haas who buy their chassis in, um, they're, mm. they're going to need a longer lead time because they've got to then take these regulations and then go to Delara and hope that Delara have got the capabilities of making what's going to be needed in time. Uh, well, I mean, it works slightly differently than, than that for um, for Haas. But yeah, I mean, any, any team that has got any supplier mm. relationship um, so Toro Rosso, for example, um, for uh, Racing Point getting, you know, their engine and gearbox from from Mercedes. You know, most of the midfield teams have got some kind of um, dependency on somebody else to, um, you know, get parts in um, once they've been designed by the, um, the supplying team. So it is tricky. So in some respects, it, you know, it should be earlier rather than later, but. Equally, that will always give an advantage to the bigger team because at the end of the day, the more resources you can throw at this, um, the more chances you've got to get in the right answers. And even if someone like Alfa Romeo come up with a blindingly great solution to 2021 regs and they come out with it during testing and they race it at Melbourne, by the time to get the Spanish Grand Prix, the big three teams will have copied it anyway. So, you know, you know, any advantage they may have would be very short-lived. Um, and, you know, that's, it's a bit sad, really. Um, but, that, you know, that's the, the, the sort of nature of how the sport will be, even within, you know, this kind of cost-cutting, um, resource-restricted formula that we should have for 2021. I, th- I think at the end of the day, the sooner the better. And, you know, just get the teams, let the teams start getting on with it. Yeah, I mean, talk, talking to the cost cap, I think there's, there's now more things that are excluded from it than that are in it. So, is it? It just sounds like a bit of a paper exercise at this point. Um, it, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know the exact workings, um, but the problem you will have is how you actually do the accounting for how many people that you're doing working on things. So it is, it, the resource restriction is very much as much as it is. Some of it will be materials. A lot of it is basically headcount. So when you then get to someone like Racing Point, where it has a relatively small headcount, you know, they will probably 
they probably would never even spend the whatever the budget cap is anyway in headcount and wind tunnel time. But if you then go and look at teams like Red Bull and Ferrari and to an extent people like McLaren, is they have these um, technology arms. So they've got all these F1 level designers working on commercial work. And if they have to come in and work for Formula One, they won't come in and work for Formula One for a whole year. Therefore, the headcount and the money gets budgeted for the whole year. They'll just come in and work the hours that is necessary and then go back off to the technology arm. And when you then look at the bottom line and you look at the balance sheet, it's like, well, that wasn't a whole person for a whole year. It was just a person for six months. And, you know, they will have an advantage and it will always be an advantage for the big teams and the teams with, you know, either technology arms or big technical parent companies like Mercedes and Ferrari that will have the advantage. Um, again, it's much more about balancing the midfield um, and preventing them wasting money than it would be necessarily to try and bring everybody, including the, you know the, some of the bigger teams, onto a level playing field. Um, it, it it would be it would be good to get a bit more sort of regulation and transparency in there so that the bigger teams can't do that. But I don't think we're ever going to see it, are we? It, 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 <laughs> we all know. Yeah, <laughs> you were saying earlier. You you know how accounting can be incredibly creative. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, there, there will be a transparency in the process, and um, you know, there'll be lots of finger pointing and what aboutery between the teams about how they're tackling things. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it's going to be possible for them to spend money in other ways. You know, using other research arms. Um, you know, all you can really do is kind of reduce a little bit the R&D costs um, but most of that stuff will be reducing the kind of the, the running costs so you know the cost of the stuff that you're, you're working through so it's your, your wages bill, your, your materials bill to a lesser degree, the parts that you buy in will be of a fixed price so it's kind of equal across the teams but you you know if, if Mercedes have spent I mean how many hundreds of millions over the past uh, five years to win these championships that money isn't going to disappear with a budget cap that money's still sat there somewhere and can be used in some way so you know it is a little bit of a kind of a it's not a complete waste of time but it, i don't think it will have that complete equality that we would be looking for it won't be a complete democracy across formula one that you know with this kind of utopia that we'd like to get to but that's not to say that you shouldn't try um something to get towards that just keeping the smaller teams financially viable, isn't it? That's the main thing. We don't. We, yeah. It's awful going through like season, coming to another end of season where you're wondering whether that such a car is going to end up on the grid next year or go bust. Exactly. You know, and there is so much money wasted, and as much as to some extent spec parts are against the ethos of Formula One, as many people would see it. Um, I think, you know, again, it's like what they were trying to do with the uh, the new teams that came in in 2010, was it? It was 2010, wasn't it? With uh, Team Lotus, Caterham, uh, Mauricio and Manor and uh, Hispania. You know, they were trying to find ways where look, you don't have to blow loads and loads of money every race simply to turn up. And, you know, the, the, they have done a lot, you know, with Park Fermi, with the spec gearboxes, again, you know, with the limited number of engines. You don't necessarily see it in the bigger picture, but there's a lot of money that the teams aren't spending nowadays that they would used to would have to spend 
in order simply to compete in the sport. And, you know, these spec parts that are being suggested for 2021 are just helping with that. You know, they're not going to reduce your R&D bill massively, but they will reduce the operating costs for all of the teams. And it's the, you know, it's the midfield teams that suffer the most in that respect. Um, And that will save them money and, you know, have a bit more of a level playing field across the grid. And will anyone care? Well, you know, I, you know, I care massively about the technical side of the sport, but um, everyone's running only... There's only three manufacturers of brake calipers in Formula One. Uh, one of them's a bit of... Two of them are one-offs. Um, so why doesn't everyone just use the same one? Why? Yeah, what... what? And let, rather than have everyone developing their own ones and or even bespoking small details of the same one that the team in the next door garage have got, but they will still end up paying fortune to do so. Why don't we have a spec part, but have Formula One talk about these parts? I'm sure yeah. Roman Grosjean would have a lot to say <laughs> if he was forced to use one particular kind of brake, because he's already probably hated uh, it. <laughs> yeah, 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 with all this stuff, there will, be, there will always be casualties, <laughs> won't there? But, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could have, you know, a, a little segment before the race, if they have a spec brake uh, brake and accelerator pedal, which is one of the things that they're suggesting, Let's have a little five-minute video about it before a Grand Prix and talk about the brake pedals. When was the last time anyone saw a modern brake pedal and how it works? Because I bet most people haven't got a clue what goes on down inside the footwell of the car. And the same with the brakes and with the clutch and the gearbox and all these other things that they're talking about making spec parts of 21. Let's actually talk about how great this technology is rather than saying, oh, we can't talk about it because it's, you know, that's our competitive advantage. So it could be another opening window um, into the sport. I think the last time I saw how a brake pedal worked, it was one of your drawings. Well, exactly. Sadly, I mean, it's only me that ever talks about this bloody stuff. But uh, <laughs> last time luckily, I... luckily there, there are people out there that want to listen and look at it. So, um, you know, may, maybe there is there is a market out there for people just to understand about you know, how fantastic these cars really are because the teams don't do any talking about it with the possible exception of Mercedes that have become quite good over the past year with, you know, various videos that they produce and actually trying to demystify some of this stuff. Last time I thought about Formula 1 brake pedals was when everyone was looking for McLaren's second one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's been a, you know, a small... Um, I wouldn't say a revolution, but there's been a, a significant change to the brake pedal in the past year or so. But nobody's spoken about it. And maybe it's not that interesting, but it's something to talk about rather than just, you know, trying to second guess which driver's changing from which team to another. It's just another facet of the sport that should be out there. Uh, now, talking talking to Roman Grosjean, Haas seem to be having problems with the back end of their car this year because it it's a regular complaint that they can't get the heat into the tyres. Um, Ferrari seem to have the same problem as well. Are there still the similarities between the back ends on both of the cars? Yeah, so they both run um, very much the same rear end, which would be the uh, the gearbox in terms of the gears and gear clusters, which isn't really affecting this in so much. But they also run the same carbon fibre outer shell that goes around all of that, which then decides the rear suspension, the rear wishbones, and then the, the, the metal hub uprights and bearings and hubs inside the wheel uh, is all common between the cars so they run pretty much the same geometry they're in a position where they can change it to a degree if they want but they are very much tied into ferrari's design in that respect um 
And then, like the way the springs and dampers work, as I understand, Haas have had a recent upgrade to um, Ferrari's uh, last season spec, which was this, you know, when they're starting to move into some of this very complicated hydraulic collapsible rear suspension. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the problem is, I mean, it, it's a, it's a very different. I mean, I spoke to uh, Gunter Steiner about this at, at Silverstone, and you know, it's difficult because I don't think anyone in the midfield, and probably even people in the top teams, really understand how to work these tiles tires in every weather condition at every track. I just don't think anyone's got their finger on it. And we've seen some of the performance deficit of Mercedes in recent races is down to the weather and therefore the tyres. Um, so Haas are in a really difficult position. But they're also made mu into a much more worse position because they don't actually design this stuff. And, you know, that's how they've chosen to enter the sport. And that allows them to get a very quick start at the start of the season. Um, but as we've seen over each of their years... Uh, in this sport if you don't design something you don't really understand how it works you don't understand the, 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 the goals and the aims that the designer went towards to in order to design what it is you just end up with basically you know bits that you have to bolt together according to the drawing and then kind of work out what is it doing and this happened with the brakes and obviously now it's happening with you know with tire temperatures so Haas are in a really difficult position in that they're really, you know, getting a kit of parts, but they're not getting all the information that maybe even you could say that someone buying a, an F2 car would get. You get a huge bundle of data from, a, 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 literally a manual from Delara. Now, Haas can't get that from Ferrari. It's not allowed in the regulations. They can buy the bits, but they can't have, you know, a helpline or a live chat to Ferrari. It's like, like why isn't the tire getting hot? Oh, try this geometry. That you, you, they can't have that. They can't have that conversation with Ferrari. So they're in a really difficult position, and this is one of the drawbacks of you know, Haas going forwards as an improved team. That at some point they're going to have to start designing aspects of the car so that they can understand and therefore subsequently change them. Now they're already being forced to change the brake ducts for next year because that's one of the regulation changes that that's no longer something they can buy in from Ferrari. And obviously, brake ducts have a huge effect on how the heat from the brakes goes into the wheel and therefore the tyre. So you want to get heat um, into the front brakes, uh, sorry, heat into the front tyres, and you want to take heat away from the rear tyres. And, you know, they will have to design that, which is great, but maybe they should start designing the suspension at the same time and perhaps the brakes, because, again, that's another aspect that they've struggled with. But I'm not hearing that language from from Steiner and from from Gene Haas that they're going to go away from this model that they've got for the uh, foreseeable future. So they will continue to have these kind of um, knowledge overhead problems that they've had for these years going forwards, and it's going to be very tricky for them. So does that mean that basically for Haas to have a good year, it's going to be luck more than judgment? <laughs> you know, it's just just it's just that car happens to work this year. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it's a blunt way of putting it, but I think it, it's a, it, it's it's a I wouldn't say a fair assessment, but it's a, it's an accurate way of putting it in some respects. Um, yeah, there, there's a limit to what they can what they can change. You know, they can go out and start making their own suspension if they want to. There's nothing to stop them. Um, 
But if Ferrari get it right, then you would have to say that Haas will also get it right. I think we saw that a little bit last year as well, didn't we? Mm. Um, as well as Haas obviously maturing a little bit as, an, as a race operation. Um, but yeah, obviously a lot of this is out of their hands. And, you know, that, you know, it's a double-edged sword. If it works, it's great. If it doesn't, you kind of, oh, right, well, we don't know what's going on. And, you know, that's what's kind of biting them a bit at this this moment. But it's as much to do with this the, the, the peculiarities of the Pirelli tyres as much as, you know, sort of the design. If we had a really um, durable race, uh, you know, tyre, they wouldn't be having this problem this year and they would probably be having a really great year. But they're just struggling to get the setup of the car to work with the tyre. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the situation with Pirelli and Ferrari have conspired against them this year. Do you think that's the way Formula One should be looking to go uh, with tyres, is to make like a, a stronger, durable tyre that'll um, last last what you want it to what, with drivers pushing? Um, because like the, the, the soft tyres that spice the racing up artificially is kind of left over from Bernie still, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's one of these kind of big picture things, isn't it? It's like, should we get rid of DRS? Should we bring refueling back? It's, you know, what does Formula One want to have in terms of racing? And how do you want to deliver that? And there's lots of ways you can deliver good racing. Um, and in the past, we've gone to refueling. We've gone to no tyre stops. We've gone to mandatory tyre stops. We've gone to high deg tyres, to soft tyres, to thin tyres. Um, we put DRS in. Um, if you looked ahead and said, okay, let's assume that 2021 will give us cars that can follow each other and overtake without DRS. If they can do that, then we don't need to have funny tyres trying to put the excitement and the jeopardy into racing, which is what they're doing at the moment. So tyres are a kind of a, a sticking plaster, aren't they? They're just something trying to make the racing more interesting because the cars on their own can't make it interesting. Um, but I've got to say, I would find it odd if we went to a situation where the cars didn't come into the pits at some point during the race to change tyres because we've had it for so long. It's, you know, since, well, was it 82 when Brabham first did that strategic tyre change, um, albeit with a fuel change with it. I think it'd be odd if we saw drivers running a whole race on one set of tyres. <laughs> I think you'd have to have some sort of mandatory rule, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's strange. It's like, you know, but then if we did that, why, why would, you know, why would you have a fake thing of just forcing a tyre stop? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's there's that aspect. And I, from speaking to the engineers that I've known in the teams, um, as much as the FIA have asked for high degradation tyres and all these other things that we've kind of gone through over the past few years with the Pirelli tyres, there is still something about the way Pirelli make a tyre that make it very hard to handle as a tyre in terms of managing its temperatures. And it's not so much that they're designed to be high deg, but they're also quite hard just to handle and to predict and you know to get working in a way that you didn't have with, and you know, again, no... Uh, not, not to be negative against Pirelli, but you didn't have it with the, the Bridgestones, you didn't have it with the Michelins. Um, so I think you could still have a, a higher degradation tyre that you needed a pit stop for, which I think is kind of where we want to get to, um, but still have a tyre that isn't, 
you know, suddenly overheating because you slide a bit or isn't suddenly going cold because it's got a bit thin. So I think we needed a, a more durable race tyre, but still one that does degrade enough for you to have to make a pit stop, you know, tactically at some point during the race. I mean, I think that's, as a gut feel, I think that's kind of where we want to get to. Um, and, you know, it's very much down to, to, to Pirelli to kind of read into that and whatever the FIA are asking them to do and actually deliver that. And, you know, I think it is just the sensitivity of these, of these tyres, which is which is the bigger problem than necessarily the degradation itself. Yeah, I kind of get the impression that the Pirellis don't degrade as much as turn on and off. There's a lot of talk uh, yeah, about cliff edges with them. It is. It's it. it you know, you 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 hear the drive. I mean, it, it's very hard because there's lots of terminology, and I think we all get it wrong at different times, and we all get it mixed up at different times. And I think Verstappen made some good comments in. I think it might have been something around that kind of that drivers four things we want, and it's just a tire is that when you you know when you're following another car and you're sliding a bit, that doesn't wreck the tire. I mean, I think we can all you know. Tires have always degraded. Tires have always either worn out or gone off through a race or through a stint. You know, we I think we can all understand that, and that's you know just the nature of tires. But it is this, you know, slightly sensitive, erratic behaviour that the tires have when they get, or how they get hot and cold is is what I think we want to get rid of, rather than necessarily this, you know, high deg, um, and particularly this cliff edge sort of thing that we've had. Lee, you look Everyone's like gone quiet. <laughs> <laughs> a bigger working range would help as well, wouldn't it? That's the the other thing I. Yeah, again, found. I think that's again. This is all. This is all part of it, and um, you know, you need a you need a, a potentially a wider range, but you want a, um, a tire that doesn't change its temperature massively as well, um, and that's the problem because you know, as soon as you slide these tires or you lock them up a little bit, they, their temperature shoots through the roof. Um, and um, equally, if you're not getting enough heat through into them because either the cornering you're able to produce or the heat from the brakes you're able to transfer, then they get too cold, and then they slide, and then the temperature goes through the roof. So it's it's the working range and how the tyres create the temperature. I think that's the sort of the, the, the issue that needs to be, um, it's kind of the, 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 the root cause that's going on here rather than just necessarily talking about them being, you know, high-deg tyres. So we've, we've said for years that Pirelli have just got a completely thankless task in what they're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, that there's yeah. again, there, there is, there is you know, FA is asking for a certain degradation curve, and it's actually quite interesting how much detail they're able to produce uh, and in order for the target for uh, Pirelli to meet. But there is still, you know, the kind of the, the tyre maker's skill in delivering that with a tyre that is, you know, much more predictable. Um, and I think that's maybe where Pirelli have struggled. Um, so it's not necessarily um, what the FAI are demanding. It's it, something in that the way that Pirelli like to make a tyre is very hard to handle, which, you know, the teams feel that they didn't have with um, previous teams. It's. I, th- I think the whole the whole tide of it is. It's just. It, I think it's just going to run and run until either another supplier comes in. Would another tyre war be a good thing in F one? Do you think? I, I'm really torn between this. Um, 
it would help sh- again it's, it's it, all it will do is introduce variation in the races in an, a slightly fake way because you will either have one good tire and one bad tire at any particular race or even for the whole season and we saw that when you know um Michelin came into F1 racing against Goodyear and then Bridgestone came in. You know, at some point, one of them likes hot weather or one of them likes slow corners. And, you know, you get that variation in the season, which is quite interesting. But really, you know, again, going back to that big picture, do we want it to be, you know, honest racing between the cars or do we want to put some variability into that by some other mechanism, which would be a tyre wall? And in the way, when you think how little testing these cars are doing now, and they're even talking about you know reducing the amount of running time during a Grand Prix weekend, a tyre wall, from a team's point of view, is absolutely the last thing they want to do. Because if they're on the losing tyre supplier side, they're never going to claw their way back up. And you will end up having, you know... The t- Teams with tyre X, you know, being in the, the top five positions of the constructors and the teams with tyre Y being in the bottom five positions. And I don't think that's really what we want. Um, and I, I think the spec tyre supply, you know, in in a cost-limited Formula One um, formula, it is the best way to go. I'd worry you get into the situation like Ferrari as well where, a tyre manufacturer comes in and just builds the tyres for that team. Because I've, I've yeah. often thought that yeah. was a massive part of Ferrari's dominance was the, the fact that Bridgestone made the tyres just for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that was... I think there was an aspect of that, and I think it was it's a little bit overblown because I, 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 I was able to go to tyre test. I mean, before I could get an FIA pass, that's pretty much the only Formula One I could actually go and be in the pit lane for at tyre testing, you know, in Spain and at Silverstone, when they did huge amounts of tyre testing. And each driver would go through loads and loads of tyres. That was pretty much all they would test all day long. And, you know, while Schumacher may have been in a position to ask Bridgestone for a particular type of tyre, the amount of range of tyres available meant that pretty much every driver could find a tyre that they would like. For a situation so i think it's it's slightly disingenuous to say that there is that that happened back then i mean there was an aspect of it but it wasn't as big as some people have painted it but as you're right you know it's it, it would be tricky if everyone could just run whatever tire they wanted um maybe they, if there was two spec tires between two manufacturers that's one way of tackling it but still there will always be out of those two tires there'll be a better one and a worse one and if you ever was able to hack into one of the team's lap time simulation software and say, you know, all the parameters, you know, how good the driver is, how good the brakes is, how good the aero is, uh, how heavy the car is, all of these bits. If you could turn one of them up to 11 um, rather than 10, the one that would probably give you the biggest advantage would be the tyres. Because, you know, the difference in pace between a qualifying tyre and, you know, a hard race tyre is massive. So if someone can produce a better race tyre, then, you know, those teams without tyre will win. And it just seems a fake way of, 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 you know, tackling, making the sport more exciting for us. Back on the current grid, we said we were going to talk about this before we started recording. Uh, Renault. 
Um, <laughs> how long you got? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 it, it, it's kind of going at slightly Williams, isn't it? Um, it's strange, isn't it? It's you know the problem Renault have always had in Formula One is how much do they commit to really, you know, grabbing the throat of the sport and saying we're going to win this at any cost. And you know, there's been a few points when. You know, during the 80s when they came in, uh, when they were a engine manufacturer, you know, with the uh, with the Williams teams, when you know, with the Renault period post Benetton um, was, you know, you know, even the Benetton rear, you could regard that as a Renault operation. An aspect when they were winning with with Vettel, at those points, you got the feeling that they were really pushing to want to do anything to win by any means, um, by spending any amount of money. And then there's other points when you think that Renault have just sort of said, we're going to come in, we'll play the game, we'll follow the rules, we'll spend a reasonable amount of money. But of course, that doesn't that doesn't win races, that doesn't win championships. And pretty soon, you know, that comes to sort of bite you on the backside. And we've seen that. And I think maybe we're in a slight uh, situation of, like that with, with Renault again, that they're not committing in a way that... Um, they really should, um, you know, particularly at Endstone. And it does seem to be more of an Endstone problem, seeing where McLaren are with the Renault engine this year. And it's strange that we use McLaren as a barometer because obviously the past few years we've been very rude about them. I think it's it's fair to say. So, you know, what's going on at Endstone? We know that they're really struggling with these tyres. Um, and again, you see the kind of the up and down performance of them, much like we've had with Haas and with you know lots of the other teams that they're struggling with that. But still, you again, you just don't get that that feeling. And um, you know, again, it's it's one of those teams where you wonder if it may be a big shake up because when you look at Enstone, it's you know it's the same Enstone that was um, Lotus a couple of years ago and Renault before that and Benetton before that and arguably even some figures there from you know sort of the uh, the Tolman days um yeah is 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 that a good thing always necessarily um and it just doesn't feel it's a, it's a team that's you know really got kind of got that sort of bite to really get back into the sport I thought they were going a very good direction and I thought last year was shaping up to be quite good but it has all sort of seemed to fallen away this year and uh, you know the car looked quite good early on but it does seem to be quite a difficult car as you, know, you can see both of the drivers are really struggling with it they're struggling with tires and um uh you don't see that sort of that tenacity for a fight back coming out from them at the moment um and it's 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 worrying because you know renault uh, wouldn't it wouldn't be difficult for them to pull the plug on their formula one operation wouldn't um, wouldn't be the first um, time <laughs> It wouldn't be the first time, and I'm sure it won't be the last time. I mean, you know, if they go, they will be back. You know, I mean, I think it's just, just the way Renault are. And, you know, I don't claim to know an awful lot about what's happening in the uh, the boardroom of, um, you know, corporate Renault, group Renault. Um, but, you know, there are there have been changes there. There's been difficult times there. Um, and... I don't know if they are talking about changing their level of commitment to the sport, but you know, in the meantime, I think they're you know they that we should be seeing better results from them than we are at the moment. I I was reading something today actually. I forgot what the numbers were now. I don't I don't know how accurate they are, 
but it was talking about the operating budgets of the teams. And I was quite surprised mm. how low on the list Renault were, considering, you know, it's it's Renault. Because I think it was like yes. 81, sorry, 91 million or something like that. Really? Oh, crikey. That, that sounds very low, doesn't it? Um, yes. And I mean, I think that sort of, you know, kind of sort of serves to sort of support my, my point that, you know, there isn't this level of demand and you know, money to really succeed. Um, you just don't, you know, you just, you don't get that feeling, do you? Um, you know, I think McLaren have now gone from a, you know, sort of, we're shrugging our sh- shoulders. This really should be good. Oh, things are really going to get a lot better. And we've gone through quite a few years of that. And I think the winter has really kind of crystallized whatever they were trying to do in putting some direction back into the team. And that's really worked. And you can see some of the heads that they've brought in with Seidel, with James Key, um, and that's really working for them. And you don't get that with um, with Renault. And um, I don't know if they realise that themselves. Um, and that's always a worry because that's kind of the, the path that McLaren had been on, the path that Williams had been on. And you know, it's not it's not difficult for a team to go from, you know, best of the midfield one year to you know a second off the back of the grid the next year so you know it, it, it for again for me it's concerning it's another one of those teams that we want to see succeeding in the sport um and uh, you know they're just not they're just not uh, doing it are they do you think any of this sort of it needs to be sort of looked at Cyril Abita bill now as far as like management goes um yes I mean I I think that's the case um when you chat to people that have been around the team or around the sport, he's not one of those people that gets, you know, any positive comments from anyone. Um, he constantly he's, looks he's, angry. He's got, he's, got, he's got some great nicknames that I really will not share. Um, oh. On, on record. Um, we'll yeah, have, we'll yeah. have a chat when we stop recording. Yeah. Yes. It's, yeah, I mean, I, again, you know, you with these, these situations, you've always got to look at the top. You know, it's not the drivers, it's not the race engineers or anyone, any lower down. You know, most people in Formula 1 are all equally good as each other. It tends to come from this very you know, sort of top level. And um, I, I, I don't know if he is the person to push the team um, as a team principal, uh, whether he's got that clout at um, boardroom level. It's just, again, you just don't get that feeling that um, it really bothers them that they're not where they should be. Um, maybe they think they're doing okay for the money that they have, but you know, that's <laughs> that, that's not how you go about running a team. Um, and we know the Endstone operation, how good it can be. You know, it's done it time and time again. Um, you know, just as you know, the, the, the Woking McLaren operation or the Oxford Williams. You know, we know the people there can get the job done. So where, you know, what, where's the problem? And it's got to be at that top level. Um, and it has to be in the boardroom and whoever's really kind of backing up as chairman. And um, obviously, you know, the, the team principal and the people in that sort of very top level, you know, the you know the Bob Bells and people like that there. So, yeah, they're, they're, I think there is scope for some, some shake-up there. 
Well, I saw um, Alan Prost has been promoted, hasn't he, to like head of Renault Sport or something like that? Sporting director now, I think. And I wondered whether we might have Prost as a Formula One team head again. Um, yeah, I've got to say that, that all those thoughts did run through my mind when I saw that announce, and I wasn't sure if that was a hoax, to be honest, at first, <laughs> but because, um, again, is that the right person in that job? You know, Prost is, you know, he's proven to be very much a Renault man, um, but he was very hands-off through their formulary, you know, um, operation, you know, as much as I massively admire him, and I think he's nowadays very much underestimated as the driver that he was sort of back in the eighties the, the and the early nineties. Um, but in terms of, he's a nice figurehead, but I don't think he's the person that getting the job done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think their former re-operation very much um, underlined that he was, you know, kind of there to be brought out and chat to people and you know, uh, be someone can go sit in the boardroom and talk about stuff but i don't think it's the person that makes change and pushes the team forwards so that's a bit concerning that he was even if he is just uh you know kind of an interim person in that role until whoever is more suited comes into it but it, it doesn't feel like a good move to me it wasn't a brilliant team principal last time around i was just going to say that it seems <laughs> it's a bit blunt to say but if he was if he if he was the man for the job prost grand prix might still be on the grid Yes, I mean that, yeah, there, there, there was. There's lots of backstories to the, the Prost Grand Prix uh, saga. Um, you know, it was. Um, I wouldn't again, not, not necessarily all of his fault, but um, yeah, some of the fault does lay at Prost's door as well as the circumstances in which the whole thing uh, started and evolved. But um, yeah, I, I don't think Prost is necessary, as I say, at the moment is the person to be in. Renault Formula One, trying to get things sorted out. Do you think if Renault were to pull out as a team again, they'd continue as an engine manufacturer? I think they would. Um, again, it's it's yeah, it's a little bit in their DNA, and I think it is equally again, obviously, depending on what happens with the regulations going forwards. But I think it is something that works with them, and I think you know. Honda are uh, someone that maybe they need to go back and have a look at and think Honda really weren't a successful entrant constructor in Formula One, but they work really well as a engine powertrain manufacturer. And because big organizations tend to be less agile than teams and given the, the long lead times for you know, engine development, it works much better in that respect, I think. I think you're much better off as the sort of the history of Formula One has shown. It's very much the garageists that have been the little agile manufacturer race team that are you know, making the race team decisions, that are making the car design decisions and having you know, a good, robust engine strapped in the back that are succeeding. You know, Ferrari have proven that wrong from time to time and Mercedes at the moment are kind of blowing that concept completely out of water but in some respects you think you could look at the Brackley uh, versus the Bricksworth operation and it they're actually almost working as a garage east under one roof or whether you can even have that but you know they are very much an engine operation and a race team race constructor operation uh, as much as they're very well gelled together it's not one big corporate conglomerates operation like 
Honda Formula One used to be. So you know, maybe that that that's a, a hint for Renault that you know trying to run a corporate F1 constructor team is not the way to go forwards, but just to maybe be almost like a, a sponsor and have less involvement in the operation of the team and uh, you know let an agile operation run that while you you know do the slow burn engine powertrain development. We'll start. We'll start the crowdfunding now. Three legs, four wheels, scarves racing, <laughs> <laughs> powered by Renault. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if we get anywhere near the uh, the minimum entrance fee, let alone the uh, uh, maximum uh, budget for uh, 2021. But we'll see. <laughs> Be fine. We'll get Max Chilton in and Pastor Maldonado. Oof. Nothing can go wrong. <laughs> Um, that's another thing I wanted to ask you. We've not really talked about McLaren yet, but I want, um, just want to sort of pick your brains on what you think about the, the IndyCar entry. Um, I'm, I'm not particularly close to this, but um, I've, I know some people that were involved in the Indy 500 entry and how that was run, and I think some of that has come out through the media post-Indy 500. Missing steering um, wheel comes to mind. <laughs> Yes. Um, now, and as I understand is that they're pretty much just buying into an existing team rather than trying to set up their own operation. Um, I mean, I've, I think McLaren or any F1 team being involved in any other sport is, is a great idea. And I think it is tricky to find the balance between how much do you run it yourself? How much do you buy in expertise? How much is it just a badged operation? Um, I mean, I, I think McLaren, honestly, should be focusing on Formula One at this moment uh, rather than trying to have a sort of a vanity project um, because it does distract them. And they're already talking about, um, you know, this um, supercar, hypercar um, World Endurance Championship entry as well, which is just, you know, you know, when you see these people suddenly start to do loads of different things before they've mastered one, it's normally, you know, you find that you're really struggling. And McLaren even struggled when they were building, um, you know, MTC. Um, and, you know, Ron was distracted during that year in F1, wasn't he? Mm. So how can they be trying to rebuild a Formula One team and have a IndyCar team and you know, a, a whack entry, it just doesn't, it do, doesn't feel like it's what they should be focusing their energies on. So, um, but, you know, if they feel they can do that, then, you know, orange cars racing in IndyCar, great. Maybe we can get some of the other teams involved. You know, I think that would be great if we could have more of a spread of these teams across all these different championships. Because I think maybe one of the positive effects or, or one of the positive things from the Alonso effect that we've seen over the past couple of years is if you put a big name, whether that's a driver or a team, into another category, all the Formula One fans suddenly look over and go, wow, Daytona's great, isn't it? Oh, IndyCar's great. The Dakar's great. Oh, um, you know, Formula E or whatever, you know, if Alonso suddenly goes MotoGP racing. I think people, a lot of people get very focused on just looking at F1 and suddenly looking at some of these other fantastic categories and these big, big name races. Uh, Le Mans, I didn't mention, obviously. Um, it, it is good. So, you know, maybe the regulations need to think about that as well. You know, there's lots of talk about powertrain. And one of the interesting conversations I've had with lots of um, 
endurance championship engine manufacturers and formula one engine manufacturers they all go oh no you couldn't you couldn't have an f1 spec engine running in wc it'd be too expensive and it's like yeah and they said well obviously you couldn't have a wc spec engine running in formula one it's not sophisticated enough then maybe you have rules where you have a base engine that runs across all of these categories and then you strap on, you know, the hybrid systems and the turbos and some of the clever technology to get it to an F1 spec engine. But the F1 engine trickles down somehow to give you the Formula 2 engine, give you the, an engine that runs at Daytona or Le Mans or IndyCar even. And that would be a better bet than having, you know, people trying to bespoke an engine for each of these categories. And that could be a way that you could get more, you know, sort of a globalization of <laughs> of you know teams and manufacturers and entrants uh, across across all these different categories. I mean that, that may be happening because didn't IndyCar announce in the last few days they're going hybrid in the next couple of years? So twenty twenty rings uh, about. British, British touring car have as well. Um, the the IndyCar hybrid's quite interesting because it's you know they've already got quite a powerful engine. Um, you know, quite a large capacity uh, engine with twin turbos. But I, as I remember, the the hybrid only adds about 50 horsepower. Well, you know, that's nothing to be sniffed at because my, my, my car probably doesn't produce that anyway. But it doesn't seem like an awful lot of energy or power to be strapped back into the car when you've kind of got open regulation. Surely they should have said, yeah, we're going to give you you know, a blast of 500 horsepower for 15 seconds or something. It's like that seems a bit more, you know, brash and grand that IndyCar should be doing rather than a kind of a humble 50 horsepower boost, oh, which you can kind of get a big chunk of with the turbo engine already. Although after watching last night's race, I don't think that would probably be a good idea, putting an extra 500 horsepower in those cars. Yeah, I mean, I think they may need to decide where you deploy that and for how long. Um, but, I mean, yeah. There is, you know, there there was that potential to do something really quite eye-catching, and I think, you know, it will be a little bit kind of a bit like Kurz was first time round in Formula One, um, kind of lost. The story gets lost in that it's not having as big an impact as it really should do. No, that's. Uh... That's great. Um, I've just noticed how long we've been going. Craig, we will um, keep you no longer because it is uh, it is getting on a bit. But thank you so much for joining us. No, pleasure as always. Thoroughly enjoy it. Thanks for having me back on. Anytime. And, uh, we must do it again. Yeah, talk, talk again towards the end of the season, maybe. Excellent. Yes, no, definitely. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, maybe the championship might not end up being the most exciting sort of decider, but I think, you know, things could get quite interesting through the midfield as the, as the second half of the year goes on. I think that could be where we need to be looking. Hopefully the TV cameras will um, be able to focus on that. Yeah, fingers crossed. And as this isn't a preview show, we're not going to push you for uh, a race prediction this time. <laughs> Thank heavens for that. <laughs> <laughs> Although if you want to send us one for next week, you feel free. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm, I'm quite happy to do any predictions. Um, I don't know, I can't remember how I did last time, but I might have to go back and have a listen. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the website, I'll send you the link. Almost certainly better than yeah. any of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have all been terrible at that so far this season. Like I say, th thanks so much for joining us, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Excellent, thank you very much. Cheers, Craig. Cheers, Craig. Thanks, Craig. Cheers. Bye, bye. Always good to speak to Craig. It really is. Uh, right, because we're running a little bit light on time, sadly there is no total shunt this week. We didn't have time to do one, 
So, really, it's straight on to Formula Lee. And uh, the challenge for the summer break race, when I eventually got it right, was a lap of Baku in the 2004 Ferrari. Um, quite a few entries. And uh, what you needed to get was 140.363 to uh, get into the top 20. And these are the people that did. In 20th, we had Alberto Roldan. 19th, Brooks de Geer. 13th, he sent me a pronunciation guide, and I hope I've got this right, Carl Toomey. Uh, 17th was Chris Shales. 16th, Adam Smith. 15th was Joe Marsh. Kyle Armstrong was 14th. Eric Farnan, 13th. Pete Bull was in 12th. And I still don't know how I've done this, but I managed to get into 11th place. In 10th was Nathan Mazzolo. 9th, Julian McMahon-Hyde. 8th, usual winner, Chris Olby. In 7th was Max Williams. 6th was Santerio Nasty. 5th was Mike Camping, And 4th was Alessandro Popolani. Right, on to the top three. A couple of familiar names in the top three from uh, from way back. In 3rd place with a time of 138.913 was Luke Nipper. In 2nd place with 138.899 was Will Coates. And this week's winner with a time of 138.644 was Matthew Morrison. Congratulations to everybody who uh, made the points, including me, again. And um, full details are on the website. Right, we'll need a challenge for Belgium, won't we? And uh, it's going to be another dry race. And I think this time let's, um, let's do it in a Red Bull. So Belgium in the dry, in the current Red Bull. And you have until the day after the Belgian Grand Prix, which, if memory serves, is... Missing. Um, here we go. Monday, September the 2nd at 7 o'clock UK time to get the times in. You can email them to us, 3legs4wheels at gmail.com. You can uh, send a DM on Twitter at 3legs4wheels. Send a DM on Facebook. We're on there as well at 3legs4wheels. And um, some people are sending them through on Instagram, which we're on as well at 3legs4wheels. Um, right. I'm the last person left, so it just leaves me to uh, thank everyone for listening, and thanks once again to Scarbs for joining us and having another uh, great conversation with us. We'll be back next week, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.